Exodus chapter 11. And uh, Steve Anderson is going to read this text for us. And let us not only read this, but also as we're reading it, be praying that God would have freedom to fashion and shape us according to his purposes. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of coming before you this morning and humbling ourselves before your word. And Lord, we, we want to hear from you. So Lord, we ask that uh, we would be teachable. We ask, Lord, that you would um, help us to grow. We ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are humble and eager to, to listen. And Lord, would you use me as your mouthpiece now to speak your truth and to convey it in such a way that helps us to understand that you are a great God and Savior. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, I want to uh, begin this morning just by echoing some of the things that have been said already. Uh, this week has been a trying and exhausting one for uh, all of us. I think on many levels, uh, we've been trying to endure the restrictions imposed on us by our government. Um, we've been helping our children finish out their last week of school, some having special programs or even having some graduations. And all of that has been taking place while at the same time we've been struggling with our emotions on watching the video and hearing about the death of George Floyd. And then having seen all the anger and the protests and the rioting that has taken place in cities all across the country. Our lives are full of uncertainty, of fear, of anger, and frustration, and confusion. And we might be getting to a place where we're saying in our heart, we just don't care anymore. And unfortunately, suicide is on the rise. 
rebellion is on the streets, and we're all over the place in our opinions as far as COVID-19 is concerned. And in many ways and on many fronts, our hearts are crying out for justice. Who is responsible for the current pandemic? That was the cry over the past couple of months. You know, is it China? Is it, is it particular doctors? And then came the shooting of Ahmed Arbery by two men in Georgia, making a citizen's arrest because apparently he trespassed on their property and they were seeking him out to make that citizen's arrest. And ultimately they shot him in that moment. Of course, our hearts were angered by the action of these two men. What he had done certainly didn't justify their actions. And now we're numb at the death of George Floyd. Everything about it points to the fact that he was murdered by this police officer while repeatedly saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it is such an evil and unnecessary injustice. And everywhere you look, very few people are are saying this was just. What I'm seeing is people saying this was unjust. And this man needs to be held accountable. Why is it that there seems to be a continued racism or abuse among those who serve in our police forces? The very people in whom we are supposed to have respect and trust. And we continue to ask real questions during this time, don't we? Why is it that these individuals cannot be weeded out? What's happening systemically? Why is it, uh, what is at the root of the issue here? Is it racism? Yes, maybe. Or is there something more? Is it brutality? Yes, maybe. Or is it something more? Is it politics? Yes, maybe. Or is there something else? Is it power? Yes, maybe. Or is it something else? Or is it all of the above and more? And then in the aftermath, our hearts are hurting for all the people whose livelihoods are being destroyed by rioters and looters. And we're saying, why is it that wickedness is unleashed when people riot and kill and destroy without regard for their own sinful actions against their fellow man. We understand that people are angry. They have every right to be angry at injustice. We understand that people have had enough because they have and we have. We understand that they don't feel like they have been heard because in some circles they have not been heard. Yet we we must always remember, friends, that we are all accountable for our actions. And friends, in order for society to function, we need police officers. We need to know that we can trust the police officers to do their job fairly and to do their jobs with unprejudiced professionalism. And this is one of the the marks that, that makes our country unique. I've been to other countries, friends where you do not want to talk to the police. I've been in a car, stopped by the police for absolutely no reason, and it's simply to get the person who's driving to give the police officer a bribe. 
And if you don't do that, then they're just going to cause more trouble for you. That's not the kind of context we want to be in. We need a police force that we can trust. We need a, a, a law enforcement system that we, we can say this works and this is good. And so we're, we're all for injustice being weeded out. But in order for our society to function, we, we also need the freedom to speak and to protest peacefully. We are a country that, that, that you know, prides itself in, in having the, the freedom to actually express opinions and have dialogue. But if you go on Facebook or read newspapers, what happens is people are just talking past each other. They're typically not talking with each other. There's a polarization. People are not listening. They're friends, in the middle of all this discouragement, in the middle of all this anger and quarantine and outrage, there is a voice who wants to be heard. And the question for us this morning is this. Do we have ears for the Lord, the creator of the universe? Are we willing for God to speak into our lives, into this situation, into this context and give us perspective? Or are we too emotionally charged, too angry, too hurt to listen to Him? And friends, it's in those times when we are emotionally charged and we are angry and we are hurt that we need to listen to Him for fear that more damage, more hurt, more trouble is going to take place. Wherever you are on the spectrum this morning, God has something to say to you. And in the providence of God, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus and at chapter 11. And God is saying this to us today. I am sovereign, he says. And I will exercise justice against the hard-hearted. I am sovereign. And I will exercise justice against the hard-hearted oppressor. And of course, who is the oppressor in this story? It's Pharaoh. Who's the hard-hearted one? It's Pharaoh. Who is the one that is experiencing the injustice? It's Israel. And God is saying, I am sovereign over it all. Now friends, it is good for us, for us to have an eschatological view of justice. In other words, that we recognize that one day, every hard-hearted, rebellious oppressor is going to have to stand before God and give an account. Whether that's Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, whoever that person is, they're going to have to stand before God and they're going to have to give an account and they will receive the effective justice of God. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. And friends, for us, that is good news. For those who have been oppressed, those who have experienced injustice, that is good news because so many crimes and offenses never see justice, not here on this earth. But we should not stop there. Not only is there a, a, an eschatological justice, but there is a, an earthly justice that is necessary. If there is injustice on this earth, then we have the power to confront and exercise that justice rightly. And that's true, then we should do what we can to see that justice 
takes place. And that's, friends, why we have a judicial system. That's why we have a police force trained to keep the peace and hold people accountable for breaking the laws of the land, including police officers who go rogue. That is why we have the principle of due process so that apparent justice is not carried out by the frenzied mob of rule without a fair trial. That is why Lady Justice is blind so that justice can be fairly executed to all citizens regardless of race, religion, social economic standing, or might want to say places of privilege like leadership in government. Everyone should be held accountable. Now, friends, this is what our country is built on. It's built on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Of course, that means it flows out of the Old Testament and New Testament. And it's there to, to, to undergird a society that can be prosperous and can be for everyone. And yet, in the middle of all that, there is man's sinfulness. But, friends, God says... I am sovereign, and I will exercise justice against the hard-hearted oppressor. Now remember, our justice, is as, as good as it may be, is still a justice that is tainted with sin. And so that means we will always have rotten politicians, rotten police officers, rotten lawyers, rotten judges, rotten police workers, rotten witnesses, rotten citizens. And it also means that when people act sinfully with others, that they will unite together in some way, shape, or form to protect themselves. That has happened throughout history. It continues today. And it's not just happening in the context of a police force. Now let's think about our text this morning and seek to set it rightly in its context. Israel, God's chosen people, have been under the oppressive hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt. As we began in our time in Exodus, we found out that there was a paradigm shift that took place in Egypt relating to Israel. If you remember, Israel was in Egypt. They were welcomed in in Egypt because of what uh, a man by the name of Joseph was able to do years ago, over 400 years before that. He was able to assist Egypt by answering and interpreting a dream and and figuring out that there was going to be times of famine and and so there was going to be times of plenty and there was a need to store all the crops to get everyone through that. And because of Joseph's ministry, the, the way he served God and served the Egyptian leadership and the people, the, the, the family of Joseph was welcomed into Egypt happily and given the land of Goshen to dwell in. And there they they raised cattle, they worked hard, and God gave them favor, and so they multiplied. So Israel was there as welcome guests in Egypt. But then we also see in the story of Exodus the murder of their children. Because what happened with this paradigm shift is because there were so many Israelites, this new Pharaoh said, we've got to do something about all these these Israelites. And so he moved them from a favored status to an unfavored status and and imposed slavery on them. And it was a brutal slavery. 
just a horrible slavery, and people were crying out for deliverance. And then Pharaoh, because his heart was hard and his heart was against Israel, talked to the midwives of Israel and said, when a child is born, you see whether it's male or female, and if it's a male child, that child is to be killed. But they wouldn't do it. And so because they wouldn't do it, Pharaoh went to his own people and said, if you see a newborn child and it's a male, throw it into the river Nile. And friends, this is horrible stuff. And, you know, we can know these things as stories, but do we actually understand the brutality and the injustice that the Israelites were going through? And then a little later in the story, there are these beatings that are taking place. And, and Moses, who's grown up now in the Egyptian household, he sees what happens to his own people. And the suffering of Israel and their cries go out to God. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And yet, when God raises up Moses and he and Aaron confront Pharaoh, Pharaoh responds by making the slavery worse. And he forces them to build bricks without straw and to, uh, to do that with the, the, the heavy-handedness of the taskmasters on their backs. And God says to Moses once again, this is Exodus chapter 6 and verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And then we read on. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so began a series of signs and wonders and miracles that we know to be the plagues. And they're designed to confront Pharaoh. They're designed to deliver the people, but they're also designed to exercise God's justice. And all the while, God is making himself known. And with each plague, God not only confronts Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but he confronts the Egyptian gods, the many gods that they worshipped. And we've seen in these nine plagues, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, dying livestock, boils, hail, and darkness. And they're all building up to what we might call the plague. The plague of plagues. If you remember the structure, we had three sets of three, but they're all building up to that final plague. And in all of this, God is saying to us, I am 
sovereign and I will exercise justice against the hard-hearted oppressor. So now let's focus in on our text. And I want to begin by drawing your attention to the sovereignty of God's favor. This is verses 1 through 3. Everything, friends, in this text is screaming at us with the language of God's sovereignty. Notice how it's expressed here. There in verse 1, yet one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. In other words, this is God at work. He is the one who is orchestrating these things. So this plague is certain and sure, and it will end it all. But notice then, the sovereignty of God's favor is promised. What we have here is a fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfilled, first of all, by God's final plague on Pharaoh in Egypt, which he said earlier would happen, and then fulfilled by God's provision and favor by the Egyptians on Moses and the people of Israel. So let's look at God's judgment first, and that's the first part of our text here. And it's found in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. God's favor comes first in the form of a promised final judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt. All right? This is certain, this is sure, and this is going to end it all. God is not done. He still has some work to do with Pharaoh in particular. Now, Israel is still in bondage, yet right now they're safe in the land of Goshen. But Israel has not yet been liberated. But their deliverance is on the horizon. One more plague, one day more. If you remember the ninth plague that focused on darkness, and it's where the father of Pharaoh, the father was Amun-Ra, the god, father, uh, the god of, uh, of Egypt, Amun-Ra, the god of darkness, sorry, the god of, of sun. He is de- defeated. Now in the 10th plague, the son of Amun-Ra, because the pharaohs were considered the sons of Amun-Ra, Pharaoh will be defeated. And in that defeat, it is necessary for all of us who are hearing this story, whether it's the second generation of Israel in the wilderness who are hearing it for the first time, or we who are hearing it today, thousands of years later, it's necessary for us to understand that the exodus doesn't happen by concession on Pharaoh's part. It's not like Pharaoh just says, okay, okay, you can go. No, 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 no. There's something far more powerful taking place, and we see that in our text. God has been at work to the point that Pharaoh himself is going to be begging for Israel to leave. He's going to plead for their departure. He's going to plead that they leave with all their families and their flocks, just as they requested. No limitations, no restrictions, just a desperate plea. Get up and get going, all of you, please, I'm begging you. John Calvin said it well. However obstinate Pharaoh might be, the hour has now come 
that he must succumb to God. But friends, every time God brings a plague against Pharaoh and his gods, we're expecting Pharaoh to relent, but he doesn't. He just digs his heels in, in rebellion, and he hardens his heart. So it's promised. This is God's judgment. But notice Israel's deliverance here. Notice what happens as we continue reading here. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold. And Julia, this strikes you kind of strange, I'm sure. But here we have Israel's deliverance. Now remember, this is something that was already promised. And so we need to go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 14. And we need to see what has been said there. And this is God speaking to Abraham. And and this is all part of the covenant. He says, but I will bring judgment on the nation, that would be Egypt, and that they serve, and afterward they shall come up or come out with great possession. So the promise was given to Abraham that when God defeated Egypt, Israel would leave the land with great possessions. And then in Exodus chapter 3, we have something further stated. This is God now reiterating that promise, but now to Moses at the burning bush. And this is Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Here's what is said. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. That's referring to the plagues. After that, he will let you go and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So what we have here is this word plunder. Now friends, this is interesting, isn't it? And it's powerful. When do you typically plunder someone. Just think about how it typically works. Two nations come to battle against each other, two kings with their armies. The defeated team or defeated king and kingdom is uh, is now plundered. They're either taken in as prisoners and all the possessions are, are plundered and many of them are taken into slavery. That plundering takes place after the battle, after the victory. But notice what's happening here. The plundering is taking place before this final judgment is actually exercised. And what is also powerful is that the plunder isn't being taken by force. All they're doing is turning to those people either with whom they live because they're servants in a household or they're neighbors, but they're Egyptians and they're saying, hey, Do you have some gold? Do you have some silver? Do you have some clothing? And the Egyptian people are coming out and they're saying, take the gold, take the silver, take the clothing. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 35 and verse 36. The people had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. This has already taken place. This is before the Passover. This is before... Uh, the, the actual judgment takes place. 
And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So when you think about Israel plundering the Egyptians, they're not running into houses, tearing things up and destroying things and grabbing what they want and knocking people out of the way. No, they're going and they're asking and the Egyptians are willfully coming out with the stuff to give them. Now on another note, friends, it's worth noting something here. The plunder from the Egyptians would be used by Israel for both good and, unfortunately, for evil. In Exodus chapter 32, some of these things would be used to build the golden calf. And in Exodus 35, some of these items would be used to build the tabernacle of God. And it's a reminder to us, friends, that God's physical blessings on our lives can be used for both good and for evil. But the things are not evil. Their uses are evil. So we need to be sure that we're being faithful to God with the resources and the blessings he gives us day by day. So the sovereignty of God's favor is, first of all, promised but then it's also, in this passage, very evident for us. We see it coming out of the text. Notice, first of all, the people's favor. This is verse 3. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So the children of Israel were now given favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And that's really referring back to them giving now the gold and the silver and the clothing and that kind of stuff. But there was an attitude now of respect this is certainly emphasized because it's repeated in the text. But not only that, Moses' reputation here is evidence of God's favor on his people. It says, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. But just think about that. Here is Moses, who used to be great because he was part of the royal family. Now he's great because he stands in opposition to the royal family, in particular to Pharaoh. And now there is an attitude of admiration and respect for this man. You can just imagine the people of Egypt saying something like this. You know this man who has been brought against us is a noble man of character and conviction. Or maybe Pharaoh's servants. Now this is his cabinet. This is his council. Pharaoh's servants saying, this man has not wavered. He has stood tall and endured Pharaoh's wrath. He is worthy of our respect. I mean, this is pretty incredible stuff. But see, this is God's sovereignty. And his sovereignty over his favor. So Moses was very great. And we must remember, though, that if Moses is great among the people, then so was Moses' God, because Moses was the ambassador for God. He was his representative. And this was part of God's strategy and purpose behind the plagues, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He wants to be known. And the evidence of God's sovereignty is now before us. People of Israel, 
the citizens know and respect. The servants of Pharaoh, the government, now know and respect the reputation of Yahweh. Let me ask you a question. Based on the text of Scripture, who is standing all alone in opposition to the God of Israel? Who is it? It's Pharaoh, isn't it? His people now see Moses is great. His servants now see Moses is great. They don't see Pharaoh as great. Those who are evil, hard-hearted oppressors will not be able to stand before God, not with favor. God stands with the righteous, not the oppressor. Having looked at the sovereignty of God's favor, we now shift gears, and even even as this text is being uh, unfolded for us by Moses himself, we see there's a shift now from this first three verses now to verses 4 through 8. And in verses 4 through 8, we see here the certainty of God's justice. This is what will happen. He says, I will go. Every firstborn in Egypt shall die. There shall be a great cry. No dog shall growl. That's just a summary of those few verses. But first of all, I want you to notice there is a final judgment. And he says here, I am coming to you. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. I have come to you through Moses my representative, saying, let my people go, but you have refused me each time. So now I have no choice but to come into the midst of Egypt myself. And I sent my word through the ambassador, but you ignored it. I sent my plagues as as signs and wonders to authenticate my word, but you have hardened your heart against them and against my word. So I am now coming to you, friends. This is not a happy announcement. The presence of God is sweet to those who have been reconciled to God, but those who are in rebellion or the oppressors, it is a terror. Jonathan Edwards says it best. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So not only is God coming to you, but what we find next is that God is coming at midnight. If you remember in the the unfolding drama of the plagues, Moses came in the morning. He then went into the actual presence of Pharaoh in his palace. And then there were plagues that were unannounced. But now we find that this this plague is going to take place at midnight. It's coming at the peak time when the Egyptians who worshipped the sun god Ra were most vulnerable. So God is coming to you, God is coming at midnight, and then God is coming to exercise justice through judgment. See, judgment doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> right? Judgment is, is the response of something that is taking place. And God is coming to bring death to every firstborn in Egypt. And as you read that, that might shock you, that might seem to be overly abusive, The text, though, does spell out the specifics of the plague, as well as the extent of the plague. Notice it says, every firstborn shall die. 
Every firstborn from the highest in the land, that's Pharaoh and his family, to the lowest in the land, that's the slave girl, and everyone in between. And then just in case you were wondering, even with the livestock. So why is this happening? Why this judgment? Because justice demands it. We looked at it already a little bit. But if you go back a few chapters, first of all, notice that Pharaoh and the, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt, because there were a number of them, they chose this. The injustice of Exodus 1, 8 through 15, where there is slave labor, is part of the reason why this is taking place. The injustice of chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, where they're killing the newborn sons, is part of the behavior and the murder that's demanding justice. The injustice of Exodus 5, 1 through 18, where they're making bricks without straw and they're under the heavy hand of the taskmasters and the people are crying out. That demands justice, friends. And Pharaoh and the various pharaohs, they brought this on themselves. They behaved and they acted in a way that was morally reprehensible against God and His will. And now, justice is going to be exercised through judgment. And friends, God repeatedly warned Pharaoh that judgment would come. This plague is the plague that is promised from the beginning. Look at chapter 4 and verse 22. It's a very key text to help us root this in our understanding. It says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Did you catch that? And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, that he may worship me, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so all these plagues, all these plagues in a sense are preparation and pointing to this final plague. Do you hear what is being said here? Do you understand what is taking place? It means that the other plagues were never meant to win the day. They were warnings, they were inconveniences, they were sufferings. God didn't send the blood and the frogs and the gnats and the livestock and the flies and the hail and the locusts and the boils and the darkness. He didn't send all that to see if they would work. God has not failed. This is His plan. This is the ultimate plan and He's pointing to the ultimate plague. And it's the plague of plagues. The other nine Plagues were for Israel and the watching world, but this final plague is designed for Pharaoh. Here's what God is saying. Pharaoh, you have been found guilty of murder, injustice, and abuse on my people. You are guilty and you will suffer a righteous justice at the hand of God. But then he's saying, Egypt, your king... Your Pharaoh is your representative. He speaks and acts as your federal head. So you are also guilty. Theologically, we would say the Egyptians were in 
Pharaoh. That's why the scriptures talk about Christians being in Christ. He's our federal head. What he does, what he says, how he acts affects all those who are his followers. In his active obedience, Jesus kept the entirety of the law and was actually righteous. Thereby, he he is able to impute actual righteousness to you. In his passive obedience, Jesus accepts in himself the debt that you owed to God but could not pay. Therefore, we can impute to him our sinfulness. So he imputes to us his righteousness. We impute to him our sinfulness. And so because of this double imputation, we stand before God under the federal headship of Christ. We're not only forgiven, but we're also declared righteous. Friends, that's powerful stuff. And that's all because we are in Christ. And the Egyptians following their leader, are in Pharaoh. You see, at one time, friends, we were all in Adam. Fully immersed in bondage to sin. But when Christ came, he welcomed all who would believe to be in him. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so friends, this is why in Scripture, when it talks about Christians being in Christ, it's also talking then about the fact that we have this federal head who's done this for us means that we should live our lives in light of that reality. We live our lives in Him. And we say that in Colossians, we see that in Ephesians, This is what God has called us to. So there's this final judgment. Secondly, though, there is this powerful distinction. I don't know if you caught this. Look at verses 6 and 7. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So on one hand, friends, there's a great cry. On the other hand, there's a great distinction. Let's just think about this. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, there was this great cry that went up to God. All right? In, in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 15, the people of God cried out to Pharaoh. And they were crying out for relief from their burden and their oppression. In Exodus chapter 11 and verse 6, now it's the Egyptians who are crying out to their gods in their sorrowful anguish, but there is only silence. And why is there only silence? Because they are gods that are made by men. They actually are nothing. They don't exist. They can do nothing for them. And friends, unless they turn to the God of Israel, they have no hope and they have no help. And there's this great cry that goes up, but there's also this great uh, distinction. Just as God had done with the fourth plague and ongoing, God was making a distinction 
between the impact of the plague on the Egyptians against the impact that it would have on the children of Israel. And he uses a really unusual word picture, doesn't he? He uses it to demonstrate God's sovereign control over his hand of justice and judgment. He says, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Now, if you have a dog, you know this is pretty incredible. Some of you, I can just kind of like walk up near your house and your dogs are barking already. I mean, they're just yapping away. They're probably little tiny ones because that's what they do. They just yap, 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 yap. It's usually the big ones that just kind of come to the door and go, Roof. you know, that's it. Have you ever kind of surprised a dog before? And it's, it's, it's surprised and so it's a little afraid and it, it suddenly goes, starts to growl. Now hear this. There is no bark here. Not even a growl against Israel. This is the beautiful picture of God's protection of his people. But it's also a backhanded slap to another one of Egypt's false gods. And it is the god Anubis, who is the god of death and embalming or mummification. And he comes in the form of a canine. Man's body, canine head. You may have seen it before. God is saying, not even death will growl at my people. There is a distinction. You get that there in verse 7 at the end. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He's making it plain. There are the righteous and they're the unrighteous. There are the enemies of God, and then they're followers of God. Now, what's interesting here is that even Israel at this point is still not fully engaged in following God. There's still a, a sinful rabble of people trying to figure out what's going on. And yet, it is God's covenant that is being fleshed out to the people that God has promised to keep his covenant with. Friends, God wants the Egyptians to know that his condemnation and judgment is on Pharaoh and the Egyptians only, and he wants them to know that Israel is under his protective and merciful hand. There's a final judgment, a powerful distinction, but notice, notice also now an eager humiliation. It says, And these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying get out you and all the people who follow you and after that i will go this is the people now speaking so he says your your servants will bow down the servants of pharaoh will bow down to yahweh and be the the servants or the instruments of his will some will bow down out of necessity get out you and all the people who follow you. Here, take this gold, take the silver, take these clothes, leave us alone. We get it. We've been humiliated by your God. Egypt is ruined, so go away. All of you, get out of here. So out of necessity, be under the pressure of the, of the plagues and suffering, the, the, ultimately it will be the death of the firstborn, that they're motivated to get the Israelites out. But it's possible also that some will bow down to God out of faith. And we have this indication in chapter 12, verse 38, about a mixed multitude. Now, what Scripture also reveals 
later is that they caused trouble, but it's possible that, that a portion of that mixed multitude were actually Egyptians that, that said, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this system anymore. I, I, I'm seeing the power and the majesty of God who's on display, and I want to follow him. So your servants will bow down, and then finally Moses here will leave in a rage. What is, why does Moses leave this way? What's going on? What's happening with him that he would, he would, he would just you know, function the way he did? Well, it could be because of Pharaoh's threat. And what we need to remember is all of, it's, all of what's happening here is, is happening just after what we read in chapter 10, verse 29. On the day, this is Pharaoh speaking, on the day you see my face again, you shall die. But before Moses leaves, he gives this instruction from God about this 10th plague. So this is all part of the context. It's possible that he's angered because of that. It's possible, but I think it's something else. I think it is anger because Moses is seeing a defiant, unrepentant leader whose heart is hardened. But even more than that, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is affecting other people who are his citizens. He would rather see his nation humiliated than bow the knee to the merciful and sovereign God of Israel. And friends, we just need to pause and just say that, that, that judgment... And the warning of judgment is always the, the means by which God is saying, hear me and repent. Hear me and change. Hear me, confess your sin, and be reconciled to me. You see, we think of judgment as just the consequences for action, but we are blessed here in the story with all these plagues typically to have a warning. And then the people can watch and they can learn. And Pharaoh will not will not follow with that warning and bow the knee. He only responds out of necessity when the plague is overwhelming just to get relief. Relief is not the same thing, friends, as repentance. So Moses sees here a leader of the people who is bringing judgment on his own people. And I can, I can just relate to that when you see someone who's so stubborn, who's so... Uh, entrenched in themselves and doesn't care what anyone else is saying, not even his own servants, his own cabinet of people. He's going to do what he's going to do, and he's going to defy Israel's God, and it doesn't matter who suffers. I think there's a, a righteous anger and rage that would come up there, especially when you know that you're speaking for a God who is merciful, a God who is gracious, if you will only respond to him with humility. Now, having looked at the sovereignty of God's favor and the certainty of God's justice, now we move to this last section that I'm, I'm identifying here as the authority of God's deliverance. What we have here then is kind of a, a summary flashback of what has already taken place. Because this section is really setting up the actual plague. We'll see the fulfillment or the end of it a, a little bit later in chapter 12. So I want you to notice, first of all, the authority of God's deliverance, in particular in a, in particular in a general way. That kind of doesn't make any sense, right? But, but in our context here, generally speaking, here is what's happening. This is a summary statement of what has already taken place. And so God is speaking now to Moses. And again, the context here is chapter 10, verse 28, where Pharaoh says, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for in the day you see my face you will die. In other words... All talking, all negotiation is 
over. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out from his land. I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 16. In this, this, this book of Revelation, we have a, another list of plagues. They're called the seven bowls of God's wrath. And they're very, very similar to what's taking place here in uh, this encounter with, uh, with God and Pharaoh and Egypt. And I just want to highlight some similarities, but I want to hone in in particular on the, the fourth and the fifth plague and the responses to those plagues. In verse 2, when the, the bowl is open, this first plague is the, is the painful sores, the painful sores that, that come uh, uh, because of the plague. Secondly, the sea is turned to blood. The third thing is that the rivers and springs of water turn to blood. Then the fourth one, there's a scorching fire. So this is different than what we had in Egypt. But notice the response in verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat. In other words, they were the recipients of this plague. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. You see the relationship here to the plague, to the, the judgment and repentance, right? It's right there in the text. And then, and then the fifth one is darkness in verses 10 and 11. Again, notice the response here. End of verse 10, it says, The people gnawed their tongues in anguish as a result of this darkness and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Friends, I think it's really helpful and I think it's really interesting and I think there's a warning here and I think there's an instruction here. It's worth remembering that circumstances don't, don't produce repentance. In other words, a plague is not going to produce repentance. And even for, for myself, as a pastor, preaching hell and scaring people with the realities of hell will not produce repentance. Now, it might be a backdrop for God's repentance to work, but in and of itself, the preaching of hell or the preaching of judgment is not the means by which repentance comes. Pharaoh had hell preached to him ten times, yet his heart is still hardened. And so we must remember that repentance, which is the goal of judgment, is a gift of God's grace and mercy. It's a work of God in the heart of man. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to preach on hell. Absolutely not. We need to do that. Or preach on judgment, which is what we're doing here. But understand this. You cannot scare people into repentance. You can scare people to make a decision, but you can't scare people and somehow create repentance in the heart. Repentance is always, always, always a work of God. And so the circumstances 
don't produce repentance. It's the word, it's the, it's the word of God going out that produces a change. True conversion only happens because God is at work in the heart. Now, I want to notice then next this, um, the fact that not only we see something generally, but I want to go to the end here of this story, chapter 12, verse 29 through 32. And here we find Israel's deliverance. This is, this is when the plague actually happens and then what takes place as a result of that. And in order to, to get there, we have to wait 28 verses because what we have in those 28 verses is the wonderful record of the Passover. So this, this instruction at the beginning here that, that Moses is giving is now realized at the end of chapter 12 after the Passover takes place. The actual judgment, the actual plague is initiated. Look at verse 29. Here we read the rest of the story. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock, right? Just, just like God had said. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. My friends, this is devastating. This is judgment. This is God exercising justice. Then he summoned Moses, talking about Pharaoh. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And then bless me also. One commentator said it well. The Israelites march out of Egypt through the front door with dignity, not like dogs crawling through the back fence, but like God's people. This exaltation for Israel is another humiliation for Egypt. Now, friends, I want to draw our attention here as we as we kind of move towards some concluding thoughts, but moving toward a theme that is in this text, and it's important for us to see this, and it's the, this theme of this firstborn son. I read for you earlier chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, and I want you to hear it once again. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Well, there's a prophet that 700 years later refers back to this account, and his name is Hosea. And here's what he says in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. He's speaking about God, his relationship with Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see what he's doing there? He's going back there. And he's, he's, he's referring back to Egypt being God's son, his firstborn son, and co being called out of Egypt. And then 700 years after Hosea, Matthew is writing his gospel account. 
And I want you to notice what Matthew writes in chapter 2 and verse 13 and 15. This is where uh, Mary and, and, and Joseph take Jesus, the baby, and go into Egypt. And we'll pick it up at verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. You've maybe scratched your head over what's going on there and what is taking place. Well, Matthew now is referring back to Hosea and he's showing the connection from Israel in the Exodus to Jesus ultimately and the cross. That the Exodus is a type of Jesus's return with Mary and Joseph. And so he's, he's saying basically that here is, here is the son, here is the ultimate son that God is speaking about. Here is the deliverer, here is the one who brings the real ultimate Exodus. And just a few verses later, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, we find this, and this is at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this idea of sonship is uh, repeated in the gospel of Matthew. And then throughout the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as God's firstborn. And one passage in particular that I think is helpful is Romans 8.28. You probably know it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, Jesus is the firstborn and he is my son, both coming together there. So Jesus, as God's firstborn son, went to the cross where he served as our deliverer, our redeemer, by shedding his blood and paying for our sin. Kevin DeYoung, I think, sums it up well. He says, Jesus would be the faithful son called out of Egypt. He would be filling up what was lacking in the first faithless son, that is Israel. He is the perfect son. He is the son <laughs> that, that, that mankind has been longing for. Friends, the exodus is important for us, but the exodus is driving us to see Jesus ultimately. Now, I want to bring some things to a close here and just kind of wrestling with, with what we've seen here about God's sovereignty and his justice and his authority over his deliverance and in particular about the things that we're going through here these, these weeks and, and these strange days that we're in. What do we need as we leave today that flows out of this text? And I think one of the things that we need to recognize, and maybe this is broader than our particular text, but I think it, it's reinforced by our text, is first of all, we need to be people who listen to what God says. That means we, we read it. We're eager to, to, to hear and to grow. And so we want to listen to what he says. And God says, I have heard your cry. God is aware of the injustice that is going on around the world, and in particular, even in our country, and in particular, even in police forces and political situations, whatever they may be. God is aware of injustice. But we need to listen to what God says. Secondly, we need to trust what God says. It's one thing to listen to it. 
It's another thing to actually embrace it as being true. He says to the Israelites, I will bring you out. I will deal with Pharaoh. We must place all those things that we struggle with under the sovereign head of Christ himself who is carrying out his purposes for his glory. And we must trust that what he says is true and that he will do it. Third, we must do what God says. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to trust. It's another thing to actually apply it. So friends, we weep with those who weep, right? We pray earnestly for the people that we know as well as the people that we don't know and for those who are in leadership, for protection, for wisdom, for sin to be restrained. It means that we speak up when we have an opportunity. And by that, I don't mean posting something on Facebook. But speak up. Let people know as you have opportunity that, you know, as you're interacting this week, that, you know what, you are horrified by what you saw last week. And that, yes, the issue is the injustice against a particular man, an African-American man that was abused by a white police officer. Yes, that's horrible. But it's also true from God's word that the, the, the outflow of that and, the, and the, the anger of that, the unrestrained anger is not justified when it's talking about destroying people's property as well as killing people because we've seen that also. And also, what does scripture say? Love your brother. Love your sister. Seek to understand them. Seek to understand what's going on with them. And I, I took advantage this week. I've been meeting with a couple of African-American pastors to help kind of work through understanding a particular section of Scripture. And I just took an opportunity after we did that to talk with, with one of them just about what was going on in his heart and his mind and the, the kind of fears that he was going through and the kind of ways he was reacting to this. And friends, it's good to listen. It's good to hear. I don't drive down the street typically worrying about being pulled over. And if I'm pulled over, I don't typically worry about my own safety. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not in that context, but other people are, and we should be aware of those things. And then the final thing is this, friends. Listen, trust, do, speak, and teach what God says. God's people need to know that they need to function out of God's truth. I wonder how many of the people who over the past couple of days who have been out rioting and looting are sitting in church this morning or at least watching a live stream. Friends, we're God's children. We cannot behave that way. Our anger can be expressed rightly for the glory of God and for the justice that needs to take place. But our anger doesn't justify the kind of actions and activities that have taken place. God has called us to something different. He's caused, called us to live our lives in a way that would honor and please Him. And so we need to speak. We need to teach one another. We need to teach our children. This is how you react. This is not how you react. Now, we need to teach an understanding of why people are angry. But we also need to teach the reality of restraint and the foolishness of 
unbridled unrestraint and the consequences that come with that. So friends, listen, trust, do, speak, and all of that under the sovereign, careful, just, and authoritative hand of God. Friends, God is sovereign. And he will exercise justice to the evil, hard-hearted oppressor. Now here's the thing that we have to struggle with. When that hard-hearted oppressor bows the knee, acknowledges his sin, repents before God, and is welcomed, do we rejoice? Or are we still wanting justice? Now friends, let me just tell you, justice is met. It's either met when you stand before God as an unrepentant evil oppressor and you will receive the full brunt of God's wrath for your sin or Jesus is the one that takes what you deserve as that evil hard-hearted oppressor who has now repented. And God's wrath is poured on him. And friends, be careful because in each of us there is a heart of sinful rebellion that is fully deserving of God's wrath. And if we're God's children, Jesus Christ has been the recipient of the full brunt of that wrath while he hung on the cross. Friends, that's the reality. God's justice will be satisfied one way or the other. We praise God that Jesus will stand in our place when we deserve that punishment. And by his grace and through repentance, we are not only forgiven, but even we who are evil, hard-hearted people are declared righteous by God. Let us settle in to that reality. Maybe we think we're actually far better than we are. Maybe all that's happening in our world today is helping us understand the kind of reality and hardship and injustice that the Israelites were experiencing, as well as the sinfulness of our own sin that Jesus Christ paid for when he died on the cross. Lord, help us today. These are hard times. And yet we know that you're sovereign. And as we've heard multiple times today, whether it be from from Ed, who was reading um, the Psalms, whether it's um, Tim, who was just beginning our worship, whether it's the songs that we actually sang, or whether it's the texts that were in here, Lord, one of the things that, that just rings true from all of us is you, you are our sovereign God. You are in control. Even when things seem out of control. And we must not let our emotions rule us, Lord. We need for you to speak 
to guide us, to shape us, and to direct us. And that we would then look to you as that sovereign God who will exercise justice. That justice might come through us or government or our legal system, but ultimately, Lord, it will come. And Lord, even if the legal system fails, Lord, you will carry out that justice. We have that promise. And Lord, as Pharaoh shook his fist at you and continues to do that before you, Lord, took care of him, we realize, Lord, that he was doing that in rebellion with a hard heart, and he is experiencing what he deserves. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the timely nature of your word, for the the way it instructs us. Now, Lord, help us to live our lives in this time for your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen.